Well, good morning. Tell you a little bit about uh, myself so it's not a complete stranger for, for most of you. Um, thank you. My wife and I are from the States, but we have, uh, we've been living in China for the last 16 years. Uh, the last four of those we've called uh, Beijing home. And uh, we've got a seven-year-old daughter named Isabel and a 12-year-old son around here somewhere, Connor, there he is. And since I was about Isabel's age, probably a little bit younger, uh, since grade school though, since kindergarten, my best friend was Wesley Morrison. Uh, I would play with Wesley almost every day. Uh, always at his house, never at my house, because Wesley's mom ran a, a child care center out of her home, which meant Wesley had access to so many toys. And so we were always at his home. And so almost every afternoon, you would find us in his basement playing with G.I. Joes or out in his backyard playing basketball. But I remember one week, and we were probably in fifth or sixth grade, when Wesley told me that he wasn't going to be able to play the following week because he had to go to catechism class. And, and, and actually, he didn't, he didn't say it like that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have remembered it if, if he did. Because what he told me, and he got scolded by his mom for it, was, I can't play next week because I've got to go to catechism class. Something, something about like that. And it struck me that although I didn't know what catechism class was, Wesley didn't want to go. And I was, I was thankful that, that I didn't have to go. Now, I never had to, to go to catechism class, but I went to church, and I went to Sunday school, and I would have said the same thing. I would have said, oh, I, I have to go. I have to go, too. But what I want to talk about this morning is, as, as Christians, we continue to relate to God in a, in a similar fashion, in this, oh, I have to. We might not say it, but we continue to, to relate to God in the sense of, I have to fill in the blank because I'm a Christian. I have to go to church because I'm a Christian, or I have to read the Bible because I'm a Christian. But the, the message of Galatians is that Jesus Christ came, one of the reasons he came was to give us a different way of relating to God. An adult relationship, a mature relationship with God. And, and as I say, an adult relationship, I want to I make sure that, that those who are under the age of 18, like my son Connor, um, and you're not at the Sunday morning youth message this, this week, that this, this, this message applies to, to everyone regardless of, of your age. It's not something that only applies to, to legal adults. So we're going to take a look at this uh, passage in Galatians chapter 4 and some of the verses that surround it. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish your purposes through this time, that you would uh, have your word uh, resonate in our hearts, that your spirit would convict us where need be and draw us uh, more near to yourself. And we ask this in, in Jesus' name. So Paul starts out in, uh, in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And, and what I want to start out with, um, my, my first point is simply this, that God pursues. And you see this, this message repeated in, in virtually every book of the Bible, virtually every page of the Bible, that God is pursuing people. Here in, in, in these few verses, you see God the Father, the whole of the Trinity is involved. God the Father is sending God the Son 
is being sent. And, and if you look down in verse 6, the Spirit is being sent. So God is the sender, and God is the sent one, and he is coming to pursue people. He is coming to rescue his people. And with that in mind, we'll get into some of the, some of the ideas of this passage. So if you've ever used one of those, those Bible study methods where you'll diagram some verses, you'll see that the, the main idea, the central phrase in these two verses is that God sent forth his son. Everything else is modifying that. It's telling us some details about God sending forth his son. It's telling us when he sent his son, when the fullness of time had come. It's telling us how he sent his son. Well, he was born of a woman, born under the law. And it's telling us why he sent his son, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. And this morning, I really just want to focus on the wins and the whys, the timing and the reasoning. Now, to understand the, the backdrop of, of these verses, I think it's helpful to understand a little bit of Roman culture. Because Galatia was, a, was a, a Roman city, and they understood what Paul was talking about. And I think it will help us if we can grasp this as, as well. So I want you to picture a Roman, a Roman gentleman. He's got some money, so he's got some slaves. And anyone in this day and age who had any money or land owned slaves. It was very common. In fact, the, the population of Rome in the first century when this letter was written was about one and a half million people. And, and it's estimated that about half of the population consisted of slaves. So slavery was very common. And, and slaves weren't just things, they weren't just people that you would own to do the, the heavy work out on your farm. They would work in your business. They would keep the books or they would do negotiation for your business. So you wouldn't necessarily recognize them as slaves looking down the, walking down the street. But the head of a household would buy certain slaves and he would charge them with looking after his children. And so again, in this day and age, we think of uh, the role of fathers. You know, we bring a, a child into the world, but then we want to raise them throughout their life. But, but there, and in this society, the, the father would, would father the child or bring them into the world, but then entrust them to slaves. So I kind of, as I was learning this, I was kind of envisioning, you know, the, the family gathered around for a meal and, and the dad sort of leaning over to the mom. It's like, what's that one's name again? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because, because it wasn't a close relationship at all because the children were raised by slaves. They were called guardians or schoolmasters. But that would all change at the time of the father's choosing. So the father would, sometime between the ages of 13 and 18, when he felt the son was ready to step into manhood, uh, he would determine that the, that the son would participate in a ceremony called liberalia. And, and in this ceremony, the son would, uh, would take off the, the clothing of a, of a child, and then he would put on the clothing of an adult. He'd usually go down to the city square and be presented as an adult member of the family, and he would have all the rights and the privileges of being an adult in the family. He was no longer under the guardianship of a slave at that point. In fact, at that point, he had the authority to, to give orders to, to a slave. And this was somewhat unique uh, to Roman culture, because although a lot of cultures had coming-of-age ceremonies, um, it was something like, like the Jewish bar mitzvah, when at the age of 13, the date was set. But in Roman culture... So in this city of Galatia, it was when the father determined that the time was right. 
So with that, that backdrop culturally, and, and bearing in mind that the, that the church in Galatia, they knew what Paul was talking about, that Paul was talking about a different kind of relationship with the Father. So when Paul said, when the fullness of time had come, in Liberalia, the Father determines when the, when the Son is going to pass into manhood, and, when, and, and here God is determining when his people would change the way that they would relate to him. And you can look through this passage and see all sorts of references to time. That's another, another Bible study method. You look for repeated themes or repeated concepts. We're going to go back to chapter 3 and verse 19 and start to look for some of these references to time. So chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law? Or what was the purpose of the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come. There's our first reference. To whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might come to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster until Christ came. Until Christ came, number four. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So what I'm trying to, to emphasize here is that timing is really important in this context. So when Paul says the fullness of time had come, that's, that's the climax of, of this whole passage. There's a sense of not yet, not yet, not yet, now. Now the fullness of time had come. And then if you go on in, in verse 7, there's a, and, and no longer. It's not like it was before. There's a very clear, there's a before and an after. There's a before over here in the law, and then there's an after over here in Christ. And what's, what's going on here is the maturity of God's plan, not the maturity of his people. You see, the Old Testament Jews, they, they didn't get a lot. They weren't very mature, but, but neither are we. What was, what was maturing was God's plan, not, not his people. So in the mind of God, the law had accomplished its purposes. It had done its thing. It had revealed the, the righteousness or the holiness of God. And it had, it had demonstrated over here that man was, was sinful and didn't live up to the holiness of God. And now we were condemned. We were all guilty. None of us lived up. And now it was time for phase two. And the Father knew that the fullness of time had come. And the next phase started when Jesus Christ came. That's what Paul's saying. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So again, more, more references to, to timing here. So living on this side of the coming of Christ, we're no longer under the guardianship of the law. We're no longer like Wesley Morrison and me being led along by some authority, taking us where we, where we don't really feel like going. Going to catechism class, going to church, going to Sunday school. We have been delivered from that type of immature relationship with God because Christ came. So now I want to take a, a bit and focus on the whys. Why did God send his son? In verse 5, he says, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might be placed as adult sons in the family of God. It's about status. It's about standing. Where do you stand with God? So that's what Paul's been talking about, our standing in God's family. When we were adopted as God's sons, our standing changed. That's the why. But to, to deal with adoption, you have to, to go back and, and talk about redemption. Because that's what he says. He says, to redeem those who are under the law in order that, or so that, we might receive adoption as sons. So redemption had to happen first before adoption. Now, the concept of redemption is not a family concept. It fit a marketplace. It had to do with, with slaves as well, but this was where the slaves were, were bought and sold to redeem those who were under the law. So we were under condemnation from the law. We were, we were guilty. We, we deserved punishment. And you have to understand sin for this to, to really mean anything. When I, when I first came to China, it was in the late 90s, and I would try to talk to my Chinese friends about Christ. And then I would say something like, oh, and I was trying to say, oh, we're all sinners. We all need Jesus Christ. But that, that term, which, which is used for, for sinners, it's, it also has a kind of a, a penal or criminal concept. And, and it would really confuse my, my Chinese friends. Because I think, I think they were sitting there hearing me say, oh, well, we're all criminals, so, so we all need Jesus. And, and they were starting to wonder, oh, this is my first foreign friend and he's a criminal? How did, how did this happen? And it, and it did. It caused a lot of confusion because when I would say that, it's like, no, I'm not a criminal. That would be the response. But it fits really well with this passage because Paul's saying we don't measure up to the law. We're criminals. We were guilty. And we don't even really need to get far into the Old Testament law to find out we don't measure up. I'm going to read one verse. Deuteronomy 6.5. We don't need to get to the Ten Commandments or the depths of the law. Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. How are you doing with that? Love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all, rather, with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Have you been living your whole life that way? Does that characterize the way you've lived every day of your life? 
doesn't mind. The law condemns, doesn't it? We're guilty. But Jesus Christ came to redeem those who were under the law, to pay a price in order to liberate, in order to set free. So, so picture a slave now. The only way a slave will ever not be a slave is for a price to be paid to set him free. Now, the redemption that Paul talks about here in, in verse 5, it doesn't come from the birth of Jesus Christ. It came from his death. But, but the two are so intertwined because that's why he came. He was born in order to die. That was the price paid for my freedom. Paul in the book of Romans says that the wages of sin is death. Just like in, in your career, in your job, every month or every week or every two weeks, you receive a salary, your wages. It's because that's what you've earned. That's what you've earned for working those two weeks or that month. Well, what you have earned for not living up to the law is death. But Christ took that penalty for you. He took that penalty for me. He did this to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And not as some distant little kid someplace, but as mature, adult sons of God. So in this, in this ceremony of Liberalia, a teenage young man was able to to relate to his father differently, more as a peer and as a business partner, not, not like some distant little kid someplace. Think about what it might feel like for this, this Roman young man to be graduating into a new relationship with his father. God's telling us that he, that he sent his son so that we might have that type of relationship with God, not one that's characterized by do's and don'ts and distance and slavery but one that's characterized by intimacy and relationship and authority and privilege as his mature adult sons. And, you know, I keep talking, by the way, about fathers and sons because that Roman ceremony of liberalia is in view. And, in fact, you might hear some people read this verse in, in Galatians 4 that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters— but I think Paul was being really intentional with his word choice here because who actually had the authority? Who was actually heir to the father's wealth? It was the sons. So Paul wasn't being exclusive. Paul was being very inclusive, and he was saying, no matter where you're coming from, in your culture, in your society, God will accept you as a mature adult son through Christ Jesus. Take a look back in chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were as baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the privilege of being an adult son of God was open to everyone regardless of whether you were a slave or a woman, regardless of where you were coming from in your society. And then he goes on to say, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So don't just read Abba, Father, as, as if it was just the words of a, 
of a three-year-old talking to his dad, although they were. The point of Abba is that this is the one you know. The reason I call my earthly dad, dad, is because there's intimacy there. There's relationship. We know each other. We talk easily. I don't call him father because that's, that's, too, that's too distant. Because God has spent, sent the spirit of Jesus into our hearts, we can enjoy that type of relationship with God. We sense him. He's here. The Old Testament Israelites never envision that type of intimacy with God. In contrast to what the nation of Israel experienced, our lives are no longer monopolized by this code of conduct like it would be for a, for a normal little kid. Verses 7 and on. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God... Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Do you get the sense that Paul is a little angry? It reads like he's, he's a little indignant. Have I wasted my time among you? How can, how can you who have come into a mature relationship with God through Christ want to go back over here to live through do's and don'ts like some little kid? But we do it all the time. Some time ago I was in the States and I was connecting with a friend and I, uh, I knew he was a believer, and so I asked him about his relationship with God. And immediately told me, well, I'm in a, a high-stress uh, field. He was a surgeon, uh, so I, um, I really want to live out my faith. I don't, I don't uh, drink alcohol to excess. I don't smoke cigarettes. And what else was it? Oh, and I don't, I don't curse. Smoking, drinking, and cussing. Those are all good things. But are those the defining characteristics of your relationship with God? Those are good things, but they're not central. My, my, my own self, when I, when I think about my own life and my own connection with God, I think about my prayer life, and the vast majority of my prayers are, are about things that I want to do for God. Oh, Lord, I'm praying for this, this ministry event this evangelistic outreach or this training or this meeting. Oh, Lord, would you bless it so, so you'll be proud of me. It's as if I'm thinking of God as this cosmic employer. He's my boss, and I'm going to be his, his employee, and I'm going to please him. And, and in some ways, that might sound a little bit more spiritual than my friend, but it's just my own list of do's and don'ts. It might sound even particularly among an Asian audience. I think it might sound humble. To say, oh, I'm not worthy of a father-son relationship with you, so I'll just settle for an employee-employer relationship with you. Like the prodigal son. That might sound a little humble, but it's anything but. To say, God, I don't think you're gracious enough to handle me as who I am, so I'm going to define our relationship. That's not humble. You know, and I feel like 
when I talk about this issue in particular, I feel like I'm walking on a tightrope because I don't want to communicate that obedience is not important because it is. The, the word should inform how we live our life. And, and that includes drinking, smoking, and cussing in ministry. It includes all of that. The word and the spirit ought to inform that. But that's not the defining characteristic of our relationship with God. To put it another way, if you were to come up to me and ask me about my relationship with my wife, Clint, tell me about your relationship with Sung. And, and my response was, well, she is my wife, so I do the dishes and the laundry a few times a week, and I bring her coffee in bed, and you know what? And I never go on dates with other women. If that was my answer, these things that I do do, and oh, by the way, these things that I don't do, you would think something is a little off on my relationship with Sung. Those things are great, but they, they should be the outflow of something deeper, of the intimacy and the relationship that we do share. They're not the relationship in and of themselves. I hope, I hope I'm able to, to hit that one on the bullseye. We have inherited rights and privileges because we are God's adult children that the Old Testament Israelites could not have imagined. I can name a few. The Old Testament Jews had an ongoing system of sacrifices to address their sin. And they were grateful for it. But it was week after week, month after month, year after year, never ceasing. Blood being shed to deal with their sin. We are freed from that by one sacrifice forever, complete in Jesus Christ. So the, the burden of our sin isn't following us around like a black cloud over our heads, not weighing down our shoulders because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Jews, again, in the Old Testament, they, they, they saw themselves as close to God because they envisioned him residing in the, the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the temple. They were separated by him from a veil. And they were, they were grateful to be close, but they were separated. They didn't go in. One person, and then only one time a year, would go in. But when Christ died, that veil was ripped in two, top to bottom, not, not bottom to top, because God was the anxious one. He was excited to get into the room with us. He was pursuing us. The Old Testament Israelites, they needed the teaching of of prophets and the intercession of priests on their behalf to, to connect them with God. And, and again, they were, they were grateful for that. But we have the Spirit actually in our hearts. We've got decisions to make today. And we have the Spirit in us to lead and to guide, to take the Word of God and make it relevant and, and applicable to the, the decisions we need to make today. The Old Testament Jews never envisioned anything like that. Their idea of following God was a pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the daytime. And when it went, they went. And when it stopped, they stopped. But we have the Spirit in us to lead and to guide. The birth of a child some 2,000 years ago in a barn in Israel was the turning point in history. The birth of a child 
in a barn in Israel was the turning point in the way God related to man. And it was the turning point in my life. And I wonder if it was of yours. You know, the Bible describes itself as living and active. It's, it's different from, from any other book, from a textbook that you would read and acquire knowledge. It's appropriate to respond to it. And so maybe as you've been hearing the word and talk, talking about it or contemplating it, you're thinking about how you might respond. And I think one very appropriate response to this would be to acknowledge if you have never been redeemed or adopted as a son, to acknowledge that. And to say, I want to enter into this relationship with you. Because that is good news that stands against the backdrop of terrible news. Because the truth is, we talked a lot about how we relate to God, but God relates to man in really one of two ways. In Christ or over here under the law under condemnation. And if you are not in Christ, then the Bible says you're under condemnation. But God pursues. He sent his son to rescue. It's like Rick will often say, we were just running along towards hell as fast as we can get there and God just stuck out his leg to trip us. So maybe as you're sitting there and acknowledging that you have never entered into that type of relationship with God, then a very appropriate response would be to tell him that, that you want to enter into that type of relationship with him. And, and if, you do, if you do do that, then I would encourage you to, to find John, to find Rick after the service, to talk to me, not to, to make you feel uncomfortable or awkward, but you stepped into this new relationship. We'd love to talk to you about what does that mean? What comes next? Or maybe, maybe you're more like me and you have made that decision. You have entered into that, that relationship with God, but you find yourself so quick to, to really go back to this, to relate to God through a series of do's and don'ts. Maybe it's your own list. And maybe, maybe an appropriate response there would be to confess that and say, Lord, I want to enter into an intimate relationship with you, not to, to continue to, like the Galatians, to go back to this and come up with my own list of do's and don'ts. Or maybe it's something else. I don't know what the Spirit might be doing, but it's appropriate to respond. So let me pray for us. Lord, we are grateful that you pursued, that you sent your Son, that you sent your Spirit, that you are after us to rescue us. We are grateful for the relationship that you want with us, and we are grateful for the redemption from condemnation that you offer and for the adoption as sons. I pray that you, would, that you would work in our hearts. For those of us that know you, that you would draw us to an intimate father-son relationship with you. Not through a list of do's and don'ts that would we try to connect with you. And for those of us that don't, I pray the same, that you would draw those of us here that don't know you into that intimate father-son relationship. And we ask it gratefully in Jesus' name.